It's the Bartender Journey Podcast, episode number 65, where the podcast it talks all about how to be the best bartender you can be. My name is Vince. My podcasting partner, Vano, is unfortunately not with us today. Uh, I know we promised that Vano would be back in the studio for the next few weeks, uh, but it, as it turns out, he had to go out of town for a bit. But never fear, he will be back in the studio very soon. What we are going to do this week is what I'm calling Beer Knowledge for Bartenders. And joining me on the show today is Stephen Beaumont, and he is an internationally known beer expert and author of many books on the subject. He's a hospitality consultant, and he travels around the world drinking beer. So I guess the first thing our listeners would like to know is how do we get your job? Well, first of all, you start about 24 years ago, uh-huh. when the field wasn't quite so crowded as it is now. And uh, yeah, I just I, I just thought it was a good idea to uh, specialize in beer back in the, uh, in well, 1988 was when I first really got, up, got the idea. And uh Wrote my first book in '93 and never looked back. Wow, that's great. So, uh, how do, how does one become a beer expert? I, I don't think it's just a matter of drinking a lot of beer. Well, there is a certain amount of practice that's involved. <laughs> um, nowadays, there are a lot of programs that you can actually get involved in uh, in, in terms of getting your beer knowledge up to snuff. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the Cicerone program is is by far the most. Uh, recognized by American audiences. Um, yeah, I read a little something about that. Can you can you explain a little bit to our listeners about that? Sure. Um, Cicerone was founded by a fellow named Ray Daniels, who I've known for, for many a year. And uh, Ray, being a, an immensely knowledgeable and beer-passionate individual, decided that something had to be done about the absolute lack of beer understanding that he was encountering regularly in bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So uh, he invented this uh, beer certification program called Cicerone, and there are, are several levels of it. I think the first two levels you can do almost entirely online. Well, the first, the certified beer server, you can definitely do it online. Cool. And then uh, there are tests and, and knowledge, much the like the equivalent of, a, of the Solier program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a cool thing. So, yeah, that that's kind of the main thing I wanted to talk to you about, actually, was uh, sort of beer knowledge for bartenders. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a huge subject, and uh, like you say, there's courses you can take on it that will last uh, weeks and months, I suppose. But uh, can you can you uh, give our listeners some tips? Because uh, our listeners are mostly um, working bartenders, you know? Well, you know, it, when I started – doing this, as I said, there wasn't really any source of good, solid information. And the advantage for bartenders is that, you know, as if you knew a bit about beer, you were way ahead of the customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, that's no longer the case. I, mm-hmm. I saw a stat just the other day that uh, over 35% of restaurant and bar customers, patrons, consider themselves to be fairly beer knowledgeable. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, back in the day when people didn't know the difference between an ale and a lager, people know that now. And it's always important for, you know, your bartenders and your servers to stay ahead of the knowledge base of your clientele. As soon as you have your clientele telling you things about the products you're trying to sell them, right. you're, you're losing ground. Right, right. So that, I think the, certify, the, the Cicerone program is important. I've done a lot of uh, beer education in the past myself. I've set up uh, college courses on beer appreciation and done um, bespoke uh, staff training for large corporations, Starwood, Disney, and that type of thing. 
Um, but it re- you know everyone's understanding now that it is important to have that degree of beer knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I, I was doing a little research myself today, and I see uh, basically every you know there's hundreds of types of beers, but they can basically bro- be broken down into two um, main categories, right? Ales and lagers. Those are your those are your building block categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From ales and lagers, and I would throw something else in there. We do have a kind of a wild card category, which you could describe as wild fermentation. Okay. Or mixed fermentation is another way of putting it, mm-hmm. in which you have wild airborne organisms, uh, most notably Brutatomyces, uh, having an effect on the beer. And this is how uh, a lot of the beers in the so-called sour beer category are created. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a, it's a small ancillary category, but it, it is there as well that's neither completely ale nor completely lager yeah that's uh that's got to be an acquired taste huh that that bitter beer the um sour beer uh, what do you call it sour beer sour right? beers yeah it's, yeah i'm not really fond taste. of the, of the <laughs> category name sour beers right. it's too all-encompassing and it sounds bad yeah it does <laughs> i yeah, i tend to refer to them as tart mm-hmm. uh, beers rather than sour um because i do think there is a difference between tartness as a flavor and sour as a flavor right but also, you're talking in in that category about a wide diversity of beers, from like 3.5 percent alcohol to 12 or 13. Mm. So it's a difficult category. But going back, I, mean, I, I digress. Um, going back to ales and lagers, that's where you start from, and then you get into the substyles. You know, pale ales and IPAs on the ale side, pilsners, Helles, Box on the lager side and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. The World Beer Cup competition, which judged, I believe the number this year was about 4,300 beers from all over the world. Wow. And that took place in uh, Denver. Okay. And they judged in, I believe it was over 90 categories. Wow. And uh, speaking of Knowing what you're selling, I guess uh, the main uh, the main idea here is to uh, upsell, right? I mean that's uh, that's an important aspect of this. Uh, as far as ha- having a lot of beer knowledge, you know, you can direct your customers to something they might like that, uh, m- well, might make the bar a little more money. Well, exactly. The uh, you know the, the profit margins on craft beers, and when I say craft beers, I'm referring to not just domestic craft but imported craft as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the profit margins can be very significant on those. You're certainly mm-hmm. making more than you know you would on your three dollar pint of Bud. Right. Uh, so, and, and people, of course, they're they're paying more and they're tipping more. So, from a bartender's perspective, it's also a positive thing. You know, a lot of people will just tip that one dollar a drink kind of standard. Right. But there are, you know, there are a lot of people who go buy a round at a bar and, and they'll tip on the actual amount that they're paying as well. Mm-hmm. And with more and more people using cards to pay for incidental purchases like a round at a bar rather than cash, right. again, that, that inclination to tip as a percentage is even stronger. Yeah, yeah. So what tips could you offer as far as uh, serving a good uh, good draft beer, you know, uh, are there any tips you can offer uh, our listeners for um, improving what they have on hand, you know? My, as I said, I've done a lot of consulting through the years with various organizations, and my number one complaint is hands at the top of the glass. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so what I tell people is the bottom two-thirds of the glass is yours. Do what you want with it, <laughs> but don't touch the customer's top one-third. I like that. And I don't, you know, it's it's that two-handed pour where you, you put your hand around the glass and flick the, uh, the tap handle with your uh, finger. Yeah. Yes, you're saving a little bit of time, but you're also you're putting God knows what onto that glassware. You're leaving a bad impression on someone who's watching you pour. Right. And uh, a little, you know, a little flourish can make an ordinary beer look just that much better. So don't fill it up to the right to the brim. You know, put some foam on top of it. Make it look good. Make it an attractive pint rather than just, you know, the shaker pint, which almost everybody uses these days, is an ugly glass to begin with. Yeah. And you fill it right up to the top with beer, mm-hmm. um, with no room for foam, and it just looks bad. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's part of the experience, too. That foam, is, is, uh, it adds to the experience, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, the foam actually helps the aromatics come mm-hmm. through in the beer, so you've got your retro olfactory tasting right. that goes on, and that increases the flavor of the beer. If you're serving ice-cold um, Coors Light, that's not a major issue. Mm-hmm. But if you're serving, you know, a good pale ale or IPA, then that makes it, it makes a lot of difference in how the beer tastes. Right, right. Do you have any uh, thoughts on beer cocktails, I wonder? Beer cocktails are a funny thing. Yeah. Um, I have to, I, I take equal parts credit and blame. <laughs> um, because I, I was one of the people who, actually started this whole beer cocktail thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I encountered them many, many years ago in uh, in France, actually, mm-hmm. oddly enough, mm-hmm. um, where you go into any decent beer place in France, and chances are you're going to find a beer cocktail list. Okay. So I started playing around with a lot of these things and kicked it into overdrive a bit when I helped open a place in Toronto called Beer Bistro. Mm-hmm. And then I hosted a uh, seminar at Tales of the Cocktail on beer cocktails. Oh, when was that? Oh, goodness. That was a long time ago. ago. Mm -hmm. Um, That was back in probably probably the fourth or fifth edition of Tales. Oh, okay. And uh, there were several people in that uh, seminar who have gone on to really be promoters of beer cocktails, most notably um, Jacob Greer. From the West Coast, and he's okay. uh, he's in the middle of writing a beer cocktail book now, hmm. which reminds me, I owe him a forward on that. I got to get started on that. <laughs> <laughs> but well, they, I mean, they have been around in one form or another for quite a while. I, I spent a semester of college in uh, England, and when we didn't have much money, we'd go into a, a pub and get a snake bite, and uh, which is half beer, half lager, half um, cider. And uh, for some reason, that combination would, uh, you didn't need too many of them. <laughs> that's bang for your buck drinking. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it is about that combination that uh, makes it, you know, the sum of the parts is, is more than the, uh, no, I'm not saying that right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, they, you know, they, they, there's a, a long history of beer cocktails, and normally they were, made to disguise the poor quality of the beers. Mm-hmm. So you go back into U.S. colonial times and you find all sorts of beer cocktails, beer flips, um, pig's nose, and mm. you know, all these wonderful different names. But mostly they were there to, A, 
cover up the, the relatively poor quality of the beer at the time, and B, do exactly what you just talked about, deliver more bang for the buck. Mm-hmm. So often you had rum or port or something else being mixed into these things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's a fun thing to play around with. My my favorite actually is uh, Beggar's Banquet, which is, has uh, it's got Maker's Mark and uh, maple syrup and lemon juice and bitters and uh, and some beer and that's that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, and you know, beer. There's so many flavors in beer these days mm-hmm. that uh, you know you just you can look at it and say, well, wow, this is a great taste on its own, but like a lot of great tastes on their own. You know, I'm a, I'm a spirits guy as well. I mm-hmm. I, I enjoy. All, all sorts of varieties of different gins and, and uh, whiskeys, etc. Um, those are great on their own, but they can also be really nice uh, in a in a cocktail. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason that beer should should be any different. Right, right. I wonder um, this whole craft beer um, thing that's just kind of sweeping the world. Do you think it's inspired the craft uh, spirit business as well? Do, do you think it, one? I mean, it's. If you follow the timeline, one kind of came after the other. So uh, it just occurred to me that, you know, maybe they're related. Oh, they're definitely related. In fact, a lot of uh, craft breweries have started distilleries. Mm. Uh, you know, most famously Anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anchor was the first one to, to add a distillery. Uh, Rogue out in Oregon has added one. New Holland in Michigan, Dogfish down in Delaware. So there's there's been a lot of that that's that's gone on as well. Yeah, I think I think it's exciting. Um, I actually, believe it or not, I have to eat gluten free, so uh, I'm a, I have I have to seek out gluten free beers, which is not easy. Do you know of any in particular that are good? There's uh, there's one brewery in particular that's doing some good stuff. It's a Quebec brewery, and they go by the brand name of Glutenberg. Okay. Uh, and they they've actually made the only gluten free beer that I've personally tasted that I would say is just a really good beer, period. Right. Whether it was gluten-free or not. Everything else, you have to qualify. It's like, well, it's a nice pale ale for a gluten-free beer. Yeah. But uh, these guys, they were set up expressly pr- to produce gluten-free beer, and I think that they do an extremely good job of it. They, they mix grains, so it's not all mm. sorghum or mm-hmm. all buckwheat or anything like that. They, they mix up a, a variety to get the most depth of flavor. Mm. There's one here in New York, um, Steadfast, which is actually quite good. Their pale ale is excellent. And uh, the Omission is another brand that has a great pale ale. Um, those, are, those are the two that I pretty much stick to because uh, they're the only ones I've found that I like. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I haven't come across those ones yet, but uh, I'll put those on the radar. Yeah, yeah. It's worth noting, just as long as we're talking about it, that you know, spirits are gluten-free. And a lot yeah. of people labor under the, this assumption that they can only have potato vodka because right. it's the only gluten-free spirit. Or grape. Um, <laughs> everything that, that is distilled gets rid of the gluten, so that's not an issue for spirits. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Although uh, there are some people that are so sensitive to it, you know, they they say the um, cross-contamination can even be a problem. I mean, I'm, not, I'm definitely not near that uh, level, but uh, there are people that are so sensitive to it that um, they don't take any chances, you know, <laughs> and then you stick with the, uh, like you said, potato vodka or grape. Um, so you're just back from Amsterdam. Are you working on a new book? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm always on the road. Tim Webb and I, uh, in 2012, published the World Atlas of Beer, which has done very well. Um, it's sold in uh, eight international editions all around the world. 
um, in, uh, I think, seven different languages. Wow. And the year after that, 2013, we published the Pocket Beer Guide, mm-hmm. um, which, again, is, is being received quite well, and that has over 3,600 beer reviews from all over the world. And the publisher came back to us immediately and said, you know what, we like this book. This is before it was even published. They said, mm. we, we like it so much, we want it to be an annual edition. Wow. So we're revising that book every year now. Um, the newest edition, I think, is over 4,300 beer reviews. And that'll mm-hmm. be coming out in September. And uh, I think very soon we're going to start on a revision of the World Atlas of Beer because there's just so much that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's almost difficult to keep up. So that's you know I'm I'm in constant research mode now, wow. uh, which means yes, traveling around the world drinking beer. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. How do you develop that? Um, when you talk about tasting notes and you say you know this this uh, smells like um, you have chocolate notes or vanilla or whatever it is you know and that and that goes of course for wine and spirits as well. But how can a person develop that um, that skill? Well, for me, you know I. I I'm not, I never stopped learning, for mm-hmm. one. Um, but I went back in, in my early days. I said that I started thinking about writing about beer in, in 88. I didn't start actually writing about beer until 90. And that mm-hmm. was because I spent that time learning how to taste. Right. And it really is a matter of that, exactly that, because we don't generally think too much about the things that we eat and drink. Right. Especially North Americans. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not raised that way. We're raised to eat and drink rather than really taste. Mm-hmm. So writing things down is very, very helpful. Okay. You know, think about what you're what you're tasting, write it down, and then cross reference with someone whose opinion you respect. Mm. Whether that's uh, you know, me in the in the pocket beer book or um you know, Stan Hieronymus, who writes about beer, or, you know, and all about beer magazine, any of these guys. And just, you know, don't accept what the experts say as wrote. Just right. try to decide whether you should be tasting this, or if you're not tasting it, why do you think you're not tasting it? And uh, just really get used to the different flavors that you're encountering. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've really been trying to um, develop that myself because I, I love going to wine tastings and spirit tastings. And, and you know, they'll always say, well, you know, you, you should the, – the floral notes will come out and you should taste pear and this and it. And I don't know, power of suggestion. I do I do taste it after they say, but it's 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 really a skill that, um, that has to be developed. You know, it has to be exercised <laughs> like a muscle. Yeah, exercise is a very good word for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like – your muscles atrophy if you don't use them. Your your sense of taste atrophies if you don't spend some time um, paying attention to it. Right, right. Well, the craft beer movement has really taken off uh, quite a bit, but there are so many people that stick to the uh, the big names and the bland beers, uh, especially in America. You know, uh, do you have any explanation of that, and also how we can break people out of it? Well, yeah, we. We don't, um, again, going to North Americans, um, not paying attention to a lot of what we're uh, eating and drinking is, is part of it. Getting into a habit is part of it. And beer is, is kind of doubly vexed because it's such a social beverage. Mm-hmm. And we're used to drinking it socially. And we don't really think that much beyond that. Uh, so it's if you're just out with your friends and you're, drinking a beer, 
you're probably not even noticing whether you're drinking. You know, you can pick up your friend's beer and have a sip of it and not even notice that you're drinking the wrong beer. Right. Uh, so it's it's paying a little attention to what you're drinking. This is actually helpful in one way for me, um, which is when I stop noticing what I what I'm drinking, I stop drinking because I've had too much, mm. and that's that's my little personal cutoff time. Okay. But I you know in terms of talking to uh, customers and and getting them to try something different. Sometimes there's a great opportunity for that. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes, you know, somebody just wants their, their Bud Light and that's it and there's no point to it. Right. But if someone's curious about something you have on tap, give yeah. them a taste. Yeah. Let them try it. Tell mm-hmm. them a bit about it. Right. You know, I, I have this thing I call the beer experience. And the beer experience is a really powerful tool for bars and restaurants because it, it gets people talking about your place. So if someone walks away with a beer experience, and that can be a bit of information about the beer or a new flavor or a new glass, uh, a beer and food combination, anything like that, uh, that's something that they'll talk about the next day at work. And that's free publicity for you, free publicity for the restaurant or bar, and uh, will increase sale in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I'm always... uh surprised and disappointed that more restaurants don't um do tastings and uh special events where you uh you know pair the food with a certain beer and you know you see it with wine um more commonly but um you know i'm I'm not seeing as many as you might think uh the beer beer pairings and tastings and things at at bars and i think it's such a great promotional tool you know and people people love that kind of stuff at least i do I agree, and, and it's something you see a lot more often um, now than you used to. Right. Uh, I host a lot of these dinners and, and such myself. I just yeah. did one at the Mandalay Bay Resort in Las Vegas uh, a few weeks ago. Cool. Um, but what to me is, is possibly the even bigger problem is when they do these things and they don't do them well. Mm. And if you walk away from a beer dinner going, well, that was really mundane, mm. then it's hard to regenerate excitement in beer Mm. Um, it's not just well I put a little bit of this beer into the sauce so then I paired it with this beer that's Mm -hmm. not the way beer and food pairing works Mm. there's more to it than that right right well uh, I won't take up any more of your time I really appreciate you coming on and uh, are you going to uh, Tales of Cocktail or the Manhattan Cocktail Classic this year I wasn't planning on it Mm -hmm. um Tales definitely not. It's uh, I haven't been for a few years now because it just got crazy. Um, <laughs> I, I still love it, and uh, I still you know get their their emails all the time and stay in touch with Ann and Paul. But um, someday I'll, I'll have to get back, but it won't be this year. <laughs> I, I went for the first time last year, and uh, I'm going back this year. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty wild experience. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Manhattan Cocktail Classic, no. Um, uh, to be honest, I, I've been so consumed with uh, planning travels that I, I'm not even sure when the Manhattan Cocktail Classic is. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, May. May, then definitely not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of travel coming up in the next few months um, over in Europe and South America, so that's going to keep me pretty busy. <laughs> it sounds like you are busy. Wow. Well, again, I thank you so much, Steve, for uh, coming on. And uh, you want to tell people about um, where they can find more information about you, your websites and Twitter addresses and things? 
Well, I'm, uh, I tweet at Beaumont Drinks. That's B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T, Drinks. Um, I'm on Facebook as Stephen Beaumont with a P-H. Uh, watch it. There's a wine guy out there who has the same name as me with the same spelling and everything. Um, he's much older, though. And uh, I blog at uh, right now at uh, Blogging at World of Beer, which is a WordPress blog, but I'm going to be wrapping that up sometime soon and uh, eventually relaunching at BeaumontDrinks.com. So that's something to, to look for down the road. And also, you know, keep an eye out for the, the Pocket Beer Guide because yeah. that is uh, rapidly becoming kind of the, the go-to reference for beer internationally. And it's not just Tim and myself. We have um, some of the best beer minds around the world contributing to that book. So we make sure that it's as, uh, as definitive as it can possibly be. Great, great. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, I'll send you for some information about uh, when I'm going to post this, probably probably next week. Okay. Well, call anytime. I, I'm always happy to chat. So, uh, oh, I appreciate anytime it. Anytime you want to do this again, let me know. Oh, excellent. And maybe, maybe, we'll run in, maybe we'll run into each other at one of these uh, events one of these days. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thanks again. Okay. Cheers. Bye. All right. That was really cool. Stephen Beaumont. He's a really nice guy. Uh, very knowledgeable about beer. You know, it's funny when we think about bartending, we often think about mixing things together, making cocktails. But uh, I think in actuality, a lot of times we're serving beer behind the bar. It's always great to have some knowledge about what you're serving. And uh, the more you know, the better, right? That was an interesting point he brought up. He said, uh, you don't want your your guests knowing more about what you're serving than you do. I thought that was great. So anyway, remember, you can get a hold of me, Vince, at Vince.Bartender at gmail.com on email or on Twitter at BarkeepTips and our website, BartenderJourney.Weebly.com. And there you can find our Tip Cup page to help support our show. We could really use your help, guys, to keep this thing going. And we really appreciate anything you can do to help out. Leave us a tip on our website. So Vano will be back either next week or the week after, and I know he's been working hard on outlines for new shows, so looking forward to getting him back in the studio. And we'll see how the schedules work out, but uh, if he's not here next week, we'll have something else cool for you next week. Uh, All right, so uh, thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Cheers.